Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Harriet Johnson. This week, we're looking at the science of right and left-handedness, but not just in people, because chemicals and even the subatomic particles that make up all the matter in the universe also have a handedness, and we'll find out how. Plus, in the news, the scientists who've made a working chromosome from scratch and the monster planet that might be lurking in the outer reaches of our solar system. Before we start the news, let's introduce you to this week's scientific teaser. We're going to be talking about right and left this week, so can you tell us what percentage of countries drive on the right side of the road? If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com and that's for any thoughts, comments or feedback you have for us here on the programme. This week, scientists have achieved what has been hailed as the biological equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. They've created a synthetic, fully functional copy of a yeast chromosome. Jeff Booker from New York University Langone Medical Centre is one of the scientists who's leading the project. Hello, Jeff. Hello. How are you, Chris? Very well, thanks. First of all, tell us, what actually have you achieved here? Well, we've made a brand new chromosome starting from a design that we put together on a computer. The original chromosome has about 316,000 base pairs, which you could think of as letters. And starting with that sequence of letters, we carved out sections that we thought probably the yeast could do without. We inserted some bits and we changed some of the letters in ways that were useful to us. Then we engaged a class of students in the Build a Genome class at Johns Hopkins University who strung together these letters into words, the words into paragraphs, and eventually we built pages of letters, so to speak. And then chapter by chapter, we introduced one chapter of approximately 25,000 letters at a time and replaced the chromosome that was present in a normal yeast with the synthetic counterpart. So you did this in an incremental fashion. You didn't replace the whole chromosome at once. You did little bits of it at a time. Precisely. Why was it necessary to do little bits at a time? Why couldn't you just make a new one and put it in? Well, we are able to do that It was kind of risky the first time to do that because by making so many changes to the sequence as we had, we did not know ahead of time what the outcome would be. This was a way to make sure that there were no flaws in our overall plan. So the yeast that you've made, it's indistinguishable when you just look at it and the way in which it grows running this artificial computer-designed chromosome compared with wild-type yeast, yeast you would find brewing beer, which is the yeast you started with, isn't it? That's correct. You picked on yeast chromosome number three, or at least that's what you said you'd done in your science paper. So why did you choose that one? Well, you might have thought we would start with the smallest chromosome, but chromosome three is actually the third smallest chromosome. And the reason is because it's actually a sentimental favorite of people who work on yeast. And that's because like people, yeast comes in two sexes. They're not called male and female. They're called A and alpha. And like people, yeast can mate and give rise to progeny. And the master regulator gene for this process lives on chromosome 3. And that's why it was also the very first chromosome whose DNA sequence was determined. So this gives you an insight into whether yeast make effectively male and female forms. And if you've made an artificial form of yeast and it still makes male and female forms, you know your chromosome is working, right? It's one of the many ways we know, yes. There are many genes on this chromosome, over 100, and basically they all have to be working to some extent in order for the yeast to grow normally, as far as we can tell. What are the implications of what you've done, of being able to produce and prove that you can successfully produce a chromosome and replace the entire chromosome in a living organism in this way? Well, two things. Number one, we can obviously scale up and make larger chromosomes, and potentially we could build chromosomes that could be introduced, for example, into plants and animals, much smaller versions than the native chromosomes, because the yeast chromosomes are quite a bit smaller. But secondly, we've installed into this chromosome a kind of program 
that will allow us, by flipping a switch, a genetic switch, allow us to trigger the formation of thousands of derivative chromosomes, all different from each other. I liken it to a system that automatically shuffles a deck of cards, only in this case, the deck contains 100 genes. So we can shuffle the chromosome and ultimately we'll be able to shuffle the entire genome of this yeast. And by doing that, we think we can make greatly improved versions that can be very useful for practical purposes not just making alcohol, which we know that yeast does very well, but many other products like medicines and vaccines and specialty chemicals. Jeff Bucher from the NYU Langone Medical Center. He published that work this week in the journal Science. Thanks, Chris. Now that Malaysian Airways flight MH370 has officially been acknowledged to have ended in the southern Indian Ocean with all lives lost, attentions have turned to recovering the wreckage and piecing together what events might have led to its crash. But it's the aircraft's black box recorder which might hold the most clues. Here's your quickfire science on black box recorders with Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. An aeroplane's black box is, in most cases, really two boxes painted a very visible bright orange. One box contains the flight data recorder, which stores 25 hours of information on how the plane's operating systems are functioning, everything from altitude and airspeed to the movement of individual flaps on the wings. The other box contains the cockpit voice recorder, which holds the last two hours of cockpit conversation. This continually records over itself while the flight is in the air. While investigators are interested in what the crew were doing just before the crash, the voice recorder can also be used to hear background noise, like emergency warnings in the cockpit and the engine noise. Black boxes are required by international standards to withstand fires over 1,000 degrees Celsius, being immersed in salt water, deep sea pressure and an impact velocity of up to 310 miles per hour. To help achieve this, memory boards are covered with thick insulation and a steel or titanium shell and are stored near the tail section of the plane where they're less likely to be crushed. Some are designed to self-eject from a plane at the moment of impact. But all this insulation makes the box too heavy to float. Each recorder is therefore equipped with an underwater locator beacon, which automatically begins to send out loud sonic pings when it's submerged. The beacon's signal can be picked up a mile away, but as the current search area covers over 35,000 square miles, investigators are concerned that the black box won't be found before the recorder's 30-day battery life expires. Another problem is that although sound travels extremely well underwater, in the deep ocean, layers of water at different temperatures and pressures, known as thermoclines, refract and bend the sound of the pings so that it's more difficult to locate. To help search, the US Navy have brought in a towed pinger locator. This highly sensitive listening device is lowered underwater to overcome this refraction and is capable of hearing black box pings at a depth of up to 20,000 feet. However, even if the black box from MH370 is not found within this time, it does not mean that it will never be recovered. The black box from Air France Flight 447 was found two years after the crash, after autonomous unmanned submarines were used to scan the ocean floor with sonar. Kate Lamble and Hannah Critchlow, and you can get hold of all our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash quickfire science. Now, also this week, scientists have announced the discovery of a new dwarf planet in our solar system. It's over twice as far from the sun as Pluto, and its presence hints that a monster planet, which could be some ten times the size of the Earth, might be out there too. Scott Thomas is a space scientist. He's at the University of Cambridge, and he's been looking at the reports for us. Hello, Scott. Hello. So what is this all about? Planetary scientists are getting very excited this week because a paper in the journal Nature has announced the discovery of a dwarf planet candidate called, well, it has a very unexciting name. It's 2012 VP113. Imaginative lot, these space scientists. Yes, although I'm told that the team who discover it refer to it as Biden after Joe Biden, the vice president or VP. What actually is it and how did they find it? 
Well, they found it using a classic technique for looking for planets, which is you point a telescope at the sky and you watch for a while and look for anything that moves. So in fact, they used an instrument called the Dark Energy Camera on a telescope in Chile. And they took some observations over, I think, one night in 2012, hence the 2012 in the name, and spotted this thing moving over a period of a few hours. In fact, when they went back and looked at some old images of the sky, they had been seen in some images from 2011, but because they hadn't seen it moving, they didn't know it was a potential dwarf planet at that point. Are they seeing a dark patch moving, or are they seeing a light patch moving? You see a light patch because it reflects the light from the sun. Okay. How big is it? I'm not entirely sure on this one. It's definitely smaller than the planet Pluto. As you may know, in 2006, the planet Pluto was declassified as an actual planet. It's now called a dwarf planet. And uh, the reason for this is that Pluto doesn't have enough mass to have pulled in all the objects from its orbit, hasn't done what's called clearing its orbit. It's simply too small for that. So there are other objects called Plutoids, I believe, which are found in the same orbit as Pluto. Now, this object is, I think, about a tenth of the diameter of Pluto, possibly. It's also a lot further out than the planet Pluto. Given that it is that far out, what are the implications then for the definition of our solar system and also for the model of how we think our solar system formed and the way the planets that we did think we had it came to be? Well, the definition of a solar system is a bit of a contentious one, which is great if you're an astronomer who likes to argue, perhaps. There's a few different ways you could think about it. You could think that the edge of our solar system is just defined by the furthest planet or the furthest dwarf planet we can see. But as we've seen this week, that's a definition that's constantly changing. You could also think of the edge of the solar system as being defined by something called the Oort cloud, which is a hypothetical cloud of objects, icy, rocky bodies left over from when the solar system formed. But we don't actually know if the Oort cloud is out there. And this object, plus another one which was discovered a few years ago called Sedna, are possible signs that we've started to spot the edge of this Oort cloud around the edge of our solar system. So why are scientists saying there could also be a monster, ten times Earth-sized beast lurking out there too? This is because the eccentricities, so the shape of the orbits of these planets, they are very long and very oval. And we expect planets to be roughly circular in their orbits around the Sun. And so the models we have for how the solar system form aren't really explaining what these bodies are doing out here and why they've got such an eccentric orbit, such an oval-shaped orbit. So one of the theories for why that could happen is that they could have been scattered out of an orbit further inside the solar system by a monster planet. That's one of the theories. I don't want you to think it's the only one. The more likely one is possibly that when the sun was forming, it was part of what's called a stellar nursery, many young stars all close to each other, and that one of these stars somehow managed to scatter these objects out of their orbits around the sun. Scott, thank you very much. The Scott Thomas is a space scientist in the University of Cambridge. We'll have to wait and see whether or not it is a monster planet or just a foible of the way that the solar system formed. Harriet? Back down to Earth now, and earlier this week, scientists in Cambridge revealed that the minerals that make up our bones actually largely consist of a so-called goo, which works as a shock absorber. Melinda Dewar from Cambridge University led the study and is here with us now. Hi, Melinda. Hello. So what is this goo, and why is it so important? Okay, so what we knew about bone mineral before we started this study is that the mineral consists of these really tiny, tiny nanoscopic plates of calcium phosphate, and they stick together in stacks between these ropes of collagen protein in our bones. So that's what we knew. What we didn't know was what held those stacks together. Now, we had an inkling it had to be something kind of plastic or flexible because if it wasn't, frankly, a stack of little plates like that is just brittle. So that was what we knew. It took us four years to work out what was between those plates. But when we finally worked it out, it made complete sense because what's there is goo. And it's a goo of citrate and water and some of the calcium phosphate mineral ions as well in there. So why did it take so long to find out this structure? Good question. And it wasn't just because we were being lazy. <laughs> if you're looking at what we call an ordered structure, a crystalline structure, a, a regular array of atoms and molecules, there's quite a lot of techniques that can help you find out about that. They're well understood. 
When you're dealing with something where the atoms and molecules are disordered, they're just in some kind of almost random arrangement, it's really tricky to find anything that can help you find any clues about that. So what we had to do is we used lots and lots of different techniques and we pieced together the information, a little bit of evidence from here and there. Our team at the Advanced Imaging Centre in Cambridge came up with some things. Our nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy came up with others. And then our fantastic theoretical physicist at UCL, Chris Pickard, was able to help us put those ideas together into a structural model, which you can and then do some calculations on, see what kind of experimental evidence should be coming out of that model, and we go back and check and look for that. Now, we had to go through an awful lot of models before we started to see something that might actually be reality. So, big project. This is believed to be a root cause of osteoporosis and other brittle bone problems. How is that, and how can we use this information to improve these conditions? On the macroscopic level, there's going to be a lot of reasons why bones are brittle. But if you drill down to the molecular level, there's a more restricted set of reasons why those molecules either have the wrong structure or the wrong interactions with each other. And so that's what we're looking at here. Essentially, the citrate and water goo allows the mineral plates to slide over each other. So as you jump up and down in your bones and your bones flex, then those mineral plates can actually move and they're not going to be damaged by that impact. If that goo's not there, then what you've got left with are these crystals, these flat plates stuck together, amorphous, big, brittle lump, and they're going to be fracturing. They're just a very brittle mass. So the question is, why does the citrate get in there and why does sometimes it not? Our hypothesis, and this is just that at the moment, is that it comes down to how this mineral is formed. It's formed, as I said before, in between these ropes of collagen matrix, and those spaces where it forms are really, really small. The citrate delivers calcium to that space to make the calcium phosphate, and then it gets trapped. It's a very small space, the mineral's forming, the citrate can't get out. What we think happens when you have osteoporosis or a brittle bone disease is that the space the mineral's forming in is just much larger. So now you're forming the mineral inside a cavern, and of course the citrate can then get away. It doesn't have to be incorporated. So you end up with large blocks of mineral without citrate, and hence brittle. So this essential goo is leaking out of the bones and then causing these problems. Thanks to Melinda Dewar from Cambridge University and she published that work in PNAS this week. It's a good problem to have got your teeth into a nice bony issue, isn't it? Thank you very much. Now, pheromones are chemicals that can alter behaviours, like mating. But now researchers have discovered the pheromone equivalent of an anti-aphrodisiac. National University of Singapore scientist Joanne Yu has found that male fruit flies impregnate a female fly with a cocktail of fats. And this puts other males off wanting to mate with her. Pheromones are chemicals that animals use to communicate with each other. And we wanted to see what kinds of different chemicals are used by different species of fruit flies. So the reason we thought we might be able to see something that people hadn't seen before is because of a method we worked out a couple of years ago where we use laser to scan the surface of the insects. And by doing so, we're able to detect different kinds of molecules than the kind of classical methods that are used to identify these molecules. So that laser technique would enable you to study not just what the insect itself is producing, but potentially what another insect it's been knocking around with may have left on it. Yes, so by using a really small laser compared to the size of the insect, we get really good spatial specificity as to where these different molecules are expressed on the surface and also where they get transferred following some kind of behavioural interaction, like mating. And that particular laser technique doesn't just tell you where on the insect, it will actually give you the chemical identity of the substance, will it? Well, it gives you a good guess. So based on that guess, you know what is the elemental composition, what kinds of different atoms are there, and probably number of double bonds there. And when you started doing this with these fruit flies, what did you see that stood out as clearly different or exceptional compared to what previously people had managed to spot using traditional techniques to study pheromones? So we had an expectation of the kinds of molecules we would see based on their mass. So we had a laundry list of things to look for. But uh, what we saw that was novel was that in males only and not females, there are a series of molecules that looked a lot heavier than what had been reported before. And then when we looked at things like the elemental composition and number of double bonds, it seemed to fit characteristics of what we would expect from a particular kind of fat. So these male flies are 
what depositing onto the females into the females fats mm-hmm. which appear to be linked to mating or influencing mating behavior that's right yes so what are these fats and how do they change the behavior of the female and when does the male put them on the female they are transferring a particular kind of fat called a triglyceride. This is a common kind of fat molecule, and the males express it in a region close to their genitals. And so when they mate with the female, they're transferring sperm as well as these particular fats. And the triglycerides go on to the female, but do they affect the behaviour of the female or do they affect the behaviour of other males? We looked at both aspects of that. Females, after they mate, they exhibit a series of rejection behaviors where they really are not interested in mating anymore for some species. And so if a male tries to mate with them, she will kick them in the head and run away. And so we tried to see if we perfumed the female purely with these triglycerides and not have her mate with the male would cause her to do any of these behaviors. But it doesn't seem to be the case. So it seems that it's more to tell other males to avoid this female. Let's just run over that. The female that you coat in this material, in these triglycerides, does not appear to be less receptive to mating, but she is actively avoided by males that could potentially mate with her. Yes, that's right. Do you know how the males are picking it up or how they're responding to it? And if they do respond like this, why don't they get confused with their own smells and therefore just go into a non-mating state? Yeah, we speculate because it's context-dependent, and so they're smelling this smell on top of the female's natural scent, the whole bouquet of the female scent plus this added male fat is probably the signal that tells other males to avoid this female. Now, you've looked just in these insects in this first instance, but do you think that this whole concept, for want of a better phrase, an anti-aphrodisiac, Do you think this applies in other animals too, and dare I say, even in humans? I think so. I mean, I know so because there's actually a large body of literature showing this phenomenon in other insects. And in humans, it's difficult to say, especially in terms of chemical signals, but it benefits both the male and the female to have some kind of signal indicating a period where the female is not interested and where males won't be successful. So it seems reasonable that it would be a conserved mechanism. Joanne Yu, she recently published that work in the journal eLife. Don't you think it's ironic, Harriet, that the male adds a load of fat to the female and then goes off wanting to mate with her? I know, it's classic, isn't it? If you'd like to follow up on the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for those news items on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Harriet Johnson and with me, Chris Smith. We asked you what proportion of people drive on the right-hand side of the road, legally, around the world. We've had some guesses coming in. Mark has also come up with a reasonable answer. He's suggesting about a quarter. He's not far off, but it's not absolutely spot on. So if you'd like to improve on Mark's suggestion, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now on to our main topic for this week, and if you look at your hands for a moment, you might notice that one is the mirror image of the other. But this sort of asymmetry isn't just in our hands. In fact, it spans the entire scientific world, from smallest particles in the universe to the drugs that can cure diseases, and also the brains that effectively make us human. To look at this more closely with us this week are biologist Chris McManus, he's from University College London, Cambridge chemist Stephen Driver and the particle physicist Ben Alanak, who's also from Cambridge University. So let's first of all say hello to all of you. Welcome, it's great to have you all with us. Hi. Hello. Hi. Let's begin with the biology and pick on you first then. Chris, you, you look pick onable. <laughs> uh, first of all, I mean, when, when we're actually using our right or left hand, well, why should we care which hand we're writing with? It matters because we're better at using one than the other. But why are we better at using one? There's several reasons for that. One is it actually always benefits just to use one of two things more than the other. There are monkeys in the wild, chimpanzees, who are searching for termites or things like that. They stick a stick into a tree, pull out the termites and eat them. And half of them use their right paw and half of them use their left paw. The ones who try and use both collect less termites than the ones who specialise in using just one. So it pays to practice and it's always better to use one rather than the other. But am I right in in saying you don't see the majority of chimpanzees in the wild who are right-handed in the same way as if I went to anywhere in the world and look at any human, I'm going to find that same right-handed dominance. 
That's right. Almost all animal species are a mixture of half right and half left, whereas humans, it's 90% right-handed, 10% left-handed, and that's something that needs explaining. So something else must be explaining that in addition to paying to specialise. There's a sense in which if we were all right-handed, it would be much easier because we're the same as everybody else, and it's easier if the whole society does things the same way, just the same way as it pays to all drive on the right same side of the road. But we're not. Ben, is it true that we're all born with a handedness, or does it develop? Yes, we're born. And in fact, there's studies where you look at ultrasound studies of pregnant women and you can watch the fetus moving around inside the uterus. And lots of fetuses, as early as four or five months of pregnancy, suck one thumb. And about 90% suck the right thumb and 10% suck the left thumb. And you follow them through and they become right and left-handed. So it's there before birth, yes, undoubtedly. I was going to say, because when my daughter was born, she is left-handed. She's seven now. But when she was very little and she'd sort of be sitting in a high chair feeding herself with one hand or the other, or when she used to, she used to have this thing about pens, loved pens. And I used to sort of play devil's advocate and try taking the pen out of one hand and put it in the other hand, in the right hand, to see what would happen. And it immediately went back to the left. So very early, very, very early, there is this bias. But why? There is a bias, but it's actually not as easy to see see as you might think. And I get a lot of parents saying, are they going to be right-handed? Are they going to be left-handed? And children, neonates, go through a phase and up to about a year, 18 months, which is called the chaotic phase, where they seem to be trying out both hands. And I think part of this is just trying to understand how hands work. It was easy in utero, they were floating around in this sort of space-like fluid environment and they could easily move one thumb to the mouth and so on. Put them in air with gravity and life gets a bit more complicated, plus they're trying to sit up and do other things and they're exploring a lot of things. It's usually by about a year, two years of age that it becomes clear if they're right or left-handed. They can move around. What happens if you look in the brain though, at someone using their right and left hand who has a right-handed bias or a left-handed bias? Is there clear differences in the way the brain's working? Well, there's clearly enormous differences. I'm right-handed, and as I move my right hand, the left half of my brain is controlling that. So I'm doing things from the left half of my brain. Now, part of the story there is that not only am I moving my hand with the left half of my brain, I'm also talking to you with the left half of my brain because language is in the left half of the brain in most people as well. But why should that matter, Chris? Why should it be important that language is in the same part of my brain as my handedness? We don't know, but we do seem to find that when you get people who get these modules in the two hemispheres of the brain, and there are lots of them, in different combinations, some of them start to be disadvantaged. So presumably there's some sort of optimal biological combination. And I suspect it's to do with how bits of brain communicate with other bits of brain, because there's, there's a lot of different areas doing different things at the same time. Sometimes it has to move across between the hemispheres, which is not a very fast process. Sometimes it has to move backwards and forwards. So presumably there are optimal ways of doing that. And one is to have the brain hemisphere controlling your language, the brain hemisphere controlling your hand next to one another. And that's probably why I'm waving my right hand around in the air as I'm talking <laughs> oh, to you. gesticulating wildly. <laughs> but what about the genetics of this? I said my daughter's left-handed, my wife and I are right-handed, but my dad was left-handed. So is there a gene which causes left-handedness? Does it run in families? It certainly runs in families. And if you take two left-handed parents, they're much more likely to have left-handed children than if you have two right-handed parents. Having said that, they're about three times more likely, but still three-quarters of the children of two left-handed parents are right-handed. So that makes the genetics slightly strange. Not easy, yeah. (laughs) It's not easy. You can model it, and we've done so. And it does look as if it runs in families. There's a lot of chance involved. And part of the trouble is that we can't see that very easily in small modern families. Charles Darwin had 10 children. His wife was left-handed and two of those children were left-handed. But with 10 children, it becomes a bit more obvious what's going on. What about the power of modern molecular biology and this so-called genome-wide association where you can go through enormous numbers of people in the population looking for genetic signposts that sort of crop up at the same time as certain traits? What happens if you do that to handedness? We've tried that and we hoped very much we published a paper last year on it (laughs) and we hoped very much to find the gene and we found nothing and more to the point we had the statistical power to find it if it were there so it wasn't there so there is no one gene that causes there's no one gene but what there does seem to be is it's more than possible that there's a large number of genes all of which have small effects and in that sense it's no different to height intelligence weight and a thousand other complex traits that we're looking at and i think probably what's happening is that 
you have a left-handed child and a left-handed parent and they will have the same gene producing that. But I have a left-handed mother and a left-handed daughter and it will be a different gene that's made our children left-handed. Well, shall we have a show of hands as to what handedness we are? So I'm right-handed. So Harriet, what are you? you you're righty? Right-handed. So Harriet's a righty. Stephen? Right-handed as well. Righty. Ben? Yeah, I'm right-handed too. <laughs> Oh, there you go, Chris. Big sample, but we're all right-handed. <laughs> Statistically, it might just have been that way with only <laughs> five of us in the room. So humans have handedness and even some animals, if we've seen... I like but... the way you nodded at Chris when you said even some animals. <laughs> <laughs> but is the same true for chemistry? Stephen Driver, this is your area of research. Can chemicals tell left from right? I don't know if they can tell left from right, but there are certainly left-handed and right-handed versions of certain types of molecules. So this affects the way that they work? Chemically they're the same, but in biological systems it can be very important to keep track of the differences between the left-handed versions and the right-handed versions. So we put these effects to the test as I went to Hills Road Sixth Form College in Cambridge armed with a smell challenge using a chemical called Carvone, kindly provided by Dr Stefan Heave from the University of Nottingham. First, I wanted to tell how well the students and staff could identify the smell of carvone, so I gave a group of them a tube to sniff. Peppermint. Peppermint, like the peppermint sweets you get. Peppermint. Spearmint. Mint. So that was a pretty clean sweet with mint, but I gave another tube of carvone to a different group and they had a little more trouble. I think it smells a bit lemony. It, it also reminds me of baby wipes. Maybe something you'd have in, like, shower gels or something. I thought it smelled like aniseed or maybe licorice. Mm, I wouldn't cook with it. It smells like musty clothing to me. Yeah, no, I don't like it. It's something that makes me kind of think a bit... Ugh. And that was the same stuff? Well, both groups were given a tube of Carvone, except one was this tube labelled S-Carvone and the other one was labelled R-Carvone. So, Stephen, what's the difference? So it's all about carbon atoms. The carbon atom wants to form four chemical bonds, and the four chemical bonds want to get as far away from each other in space as they possibly can. So they take on a particular geometric arrangement called a tetrahedron. Imagine, if you like, three bonds pointing downwards and outwards, forming a little tripod, and the fourth bond pointing straight up. So if you put different atoms or different chemical groups onto those four bonds, you form a molecule... But it turns out that you can do that in a kind of a left-handed way or an anti-clockwise way and a clockwise way. And what you have then are molecules that are the mirror images of each other. In chemistry, we call those enantiomers, and we say that the molecules are chiral. So they're chemically the same, but biochemically they can be very different. So they have a different shape, and this shape works in different ways. And one is the mirror image of the other. So there's different shapes in each of these tubes. The S form is what we would call left-handed form. That form of carvone is found naturally in caraway, which people seem to have a hard time identifying, whereas the right-handed form is found in mint, which we saw people could recognise quite easily. So these are bonding with the receptors in their noses. Stephen, is it just smells that this is working with, or are there other effects everywhere else? There are other effects everywhere else as well. In terms of applications, one very important area is pharmaceuticals. Artificial sensors is another one. We've talked about the nose as a, a biological sensor, but if we want to make artificial sensors, you know, little gadgets that can detect molecules, it may be that they need to be sensitive to the left-handed and right-handed forms as well. There could be serious consequences if the chirality, the shape of the molecule, is the wrong way around as we see in some drug examples. That's right. There are examples where one enantiomer, so one chirality of the drug molecule, is effective, and the other chirality either it's not effective or it can even be harmful. So it can be very important to get that right. The classic example was the thalidomide drug that was completely safe in one form, and then they didn't know that the other form would cause these birth defects, and that's how that accident happened, right? I believe it's actually slightly more complicated oh, than it? that in that particular example. I think the problem is that if you have the pure one, then they spontaneously racemize into the other one. They haven't got a half-life, which is very long, so you can't give the pure version. So it's really difficult to control the shape of these molecules. Of that molecule. So, Stephen, this is what you research at the minute, trying to create molecules that only go one way around. That's right. So there are ways of doing that, and there are ways of doing that that currently are used in the chemical industry. But they involve a technique known as homogeneous catalysis. So I need to explain what a catalyst is. 
So if you're trying to do a chemical reaction, you're taking reactants and converting them into products, often you need to control how that's done. So either you need to speed the reaction up or you need to push the reaction towards a particular product. And in this case, we want to push it towards a particular chirality of product. So homogeneous catalysis, imagine that your reactants are liquid, your products are liquid, and your catalyst is also a liquid. So everything's in the liquid phase. And you do your reaction, you get your product, but then you have to somehow separate out any leftover reactants and the catalyst so that you can reuse it. And that's doable, and that's done in, in industry, but it's difficult. So we're interested in a different way of doing that. It's called heterogeneous catalysis. And that's widely used in the chemical industry and in car exhaust catalytic converters, for example. And what's happening there is that the reactants are, for example, gas phase. The products are also gas phase, but the catalyst is a solid. Typically, it's a metal solid, so it's the surface of a metal. So we're looking at whether it's possible to use metal surfaces to do enantioselective heterogeneous catalysis. And how's that working out for you? Well, we're getting promising results. So we're looking at how these chiral molecules interact with metal surfaces, whether they're either symmetric, the surfaces that is, or asymmetric, and looking at the different ways in which chirality can manifest itself. So, very quickly, we saw in the carbon experiment that natural systems like the spearmint leaf are controlling chirality in the oils that they're making. So why is it so hard to replicate this in the lab? I think it's not so much that it's difficult to do, it's difficult to separate the products out. So our interest is simply in moving from homogeneous to heterogeneous catalysis to make it an easier industrial process. OK, fantastic. Good luck with that. Thank you to Thank you. Stephen Driver from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with uh, Chris Smith, with Harriet Johnson, and uh, also our assembled panel this week where we're talking about handedness, not just of people, but of the insides of bodies, brains, the chemicals that we use and take as drugs, and also the universe, because with us, Chris McManus is a biologist from University College London. We also have Stephen Driver, who's a chemist, and Ben Alanak, who's a particle physicist. We'll come to Ben in just a second. Chris Catherine's tweeted at Naked Scientists and says, I'm left-handed and a female. Is that rare? I've heard there are more personality or mental issues with left-handed women. Is, is that a, an unfair stereotype, or has she got a point? I'm not going to go down that road, but I think it is rarer to be left-handed than a woman. We reckon there's about five left-handed men for every four left-handed women. Why? Um, we don't know. There we are. That's easy. Gosh. No idea unusual, at all. isn't it? Yeah. But sex keeps rearing its head in this story somewhere. Interesting. What about this whole question of sport, though? Because I don't know if anyone here is a sportsman, but everyone says they're fearful of playing against a left-hander. Are left-handers better at sport, or is it that they just get to play right-handers all the time, and therefore when you play a left-hander, it's rare for you but common for them? It depends what the sport is. If it's golf, there seems to be very little advantage, where it's just you and a ball and a hole. If it's tennis or something like that, where you're playing other people, then... If you're right-handed, you don't play so many left-handers, whereas left-handers mostly play right-handed, so they've got the advantage over you. If it's baseball, then the pitch itself is asymmetric. The left-hander is actually one step closer to first base than the right-hander after they've hit the ball. So then the left-handers are advantaged for that reason as well. Thank you, Chris. If you would like to ask us a question about handedness, chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. We're also asking you what percentage of countries drive on the right side of the road. It's not a trick question. We're not, it's not 100%. It's the right-hand side of the road. We've heard from at Bavesh Best One. He's nudging up towards 50. He says, law of averages. If I say 50%, I'll sort of be halfway to being right. This week, we're also looking at symmetry as it pertains to the universe and Professor Ben Alanak is with us. He's a particle physicist. The world around us looks pretty symmetrical to me, Ben, but, but it's not. That's right. Yeah. It's a weird thing when you look at your hands and they look as if they've got mirror symmetry. They don't look particularly different. And macroscopic large objects don't seem that different through a mirror. But the weird thing is when you look at the smallest bits of matter, particles like electrons, the outer bits of atoms, they look asymmetric in a very special way. And also there's an asymmetry between matter and antimatter, um, which is very important for our existence. When you say an asymmetry, I mean, let's just back up a bit here, because when we're talking about matter and antimatter, we're going right the way back to the Big Bang, aren't we? And the fact that energy gets converted into material in the universe. And there's not really a fundamental reason why you shouldn't have equivalent amounts of matter 
and its mirror image equivalent antimatter. But what we see the universe is made of is matter. That's right. We're all made of matter. There's not much antimatter around at all. You can make it at places like CERN when you convert energy the other way into matter and antimatter. But the question is, you know, why did we end up all being matter? If you do the sums in the early universe, the early universe was a hot cloud of gas and there's uh, matter and antimatter are bouncing around. And um, if you work out the equilibrium of that, you're going to get pretty much equal amounts to a very good statistical average. Based on our present models. Yeah, based on our present understanding of physics and experiments like CERN give us that understanding. But obviously when we make the observation, we see we're all made of matter and, as you say, antimatter vanishingly rare. So where's it all gone? So... In fact, when you bring matter and antimatter together, of course, they annihilate into radiation. So particles of light, for example, will come out of that. And so the question is more, why aren't we all light, <laughs> made of light, right? Because if you well, have equal amounts... Some people stars, aren't they, Ben, yeah, like you? That's I, mean, right. <laughs> I think I'm a bit heavier than, <laughs> than that. So there's got to have been some slight difference between matter and antimatter. And in fact, in the particle physics experiments at the end of last century those differences are starting to come out. So they feel forces very slightly differently, not to a large extent, but the you know if you do the theory of, of what's going on, you need a slight difference between how matter interacts and how antimatter interacts, along with some other conditions in the early universe, and you get a slight tilting that favours one over the other, and in this case favours matter over antimatter. And you have to follow all this complicated math through. But as long as you've got a slight tilting, there's 15 billion years, you know, in between (laughs) where lots of boring things happen. But we end up, you know, luckily being made of matter and not light. But, I mean, I was watching Frank Close talking the other day. He's got a video on the internet from when he was giving his talk at the Royal Society because he got the Faraday Medal Mm. this year for, for public understanding of science. And he was making some of these points and he was sort of saying, you know, do you think it's a mistake or just by chance that uh, we have arrived at this situation where physics just by chance means that actually we can exist and we're not just energy or light? Or do you think the fact that isn't it extraordinary that we compare the nucleus of an atom and the charge on a proton and it's exactly counterbalanced by the charge on an electron but then an electron is just one thing whereas if we zoom in on a proton it's actually got three other little particles inside it those are the quarks aren't they and and actually there are three of those but two of them are sort of two-thirds the other one's one-third and they balance out to be about the right amount so that it completely opposes an electron and the two counterbalance that's extraordinary and it's too much of a good outcome to be chance isn't it Yeah, I mean, the accuracy on that charge measurements is fantastic. I mean, it's one in 10 to the 10 or something. But I think there's an underlying reason for that. And the underlying reason could be the grand unified theory, which says that the particles which make up a proton and the electron are two different aspects of some underlying particle where an asymmetry has been introduced in that, which splits the two off. But it explains exactly why you have this quantization of charge and the charge of a quark comes in multiples of a third of the charge of the electron. So there are other examples of theories where you get a precise mathematical relation between the charges of things. And I, I suspect it's probably due to that rather than, I don't know, there being a billion universes and, you know, you just pick at random one <laughs> where are, we can are you exist. Not, not in favour of the idea that there might be multiple universes? This is the sort of Michio Kaku parallel universes where we just happen to inhabit the one where the rules of physics work for us. The problem I have with it is that you can't test that theory. So it's really interesting to speculate about it, but I don't think we can ever know, even in principle. And so it's outside of science. I thought the whole idea was, you know, we're trying very hard to detect gravity waves propagating because the theory says that if we've got these parallel universes, then gravity ought to be able to transit between them. And therefore, if we can see the waves of that gravity coming from one to the next, it sort of says they exist. Do you think that because we haven't found it, therefore that disproves that these parallel universes can exist then? No. The the question is, is there any point in space and time where our universe is connected to one of these so-called parallel universes? If there is, I'd count that as being part of our universe because... Where space is. That, a mathematical that... trick, Ben. Aren't you, playing, aren't you being crafty? <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> That's what we get paid for. No, but um, no, I mean, if it's connected in space and time, it is part of our universe. But you're right. I mean, if you've got some foaminess, you should be able to detect that. But I don't count that as this multiverse 
theory, but uh, it would certainly be very interesting if most of the time it's not connected. But, you know, back on Tuesday last week it was, and you, you could detect the gravitational radiation from that. That would be one way of me eating my words. But, <laughs> but, if, if, but if, it, if it goes the other way and you don't see the gravitational radiation, you can't say one way or the other. And I suspect that that's going to be the case. And so that's my problem with it more. Stephen Drive's just wiped out a whole genre of science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. But Chris, in your book, Right Hand, Left Hand, I mean, you, you actually make the point early on there that, and this is something that sort of Pasteur said in the early days, which is that asymmetry begets asymmetry. So starting with the asymmetries and the tiny particles that Ben studies, that leads actually up to a whole organism or even a whole world with gross asymmetries with us in it. That's right. If you keep backtracking, whenever you find an asymmetry, something else must have caused it. And you can keep going back and back and back and you end up exactly where Ben is. Yeah. Let's have a look at some of the questions that are coming in. We've got one here from uh, Jen who said that um, I heard yesterday on Pointless that a relatively large number of sportsmen and women who play their sport left-handed are actually right-handed in other aspects of their life. Is, is this true? They're probably what we call mixed-handers. And about 10% of the population writes with their left hand, but about 20% throws with their left hand. And that means there's about 10% who are left-handed throwers and right-handed writers. And probably they're overrepresented in sport. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. We've got another one here from Vanessa. Uh, this will be one for you, Stephen. So we were talking about R and S carvone, but what do R and S stand for? And we also have D and L, and we also have <laughs> plus and minus. Why are there all these different words? There's simply different systems that have come about for naming them. So, for example, the, the D and the L, they refer to the way in which certain substances rotate to the plane of polarisation of polarised light. So D is dextro-rotatory, L is laver-rotatory, so right and left. That's one of them. Another of them is just it's another set of arbitrary rules for the order in which bonds are substituted. Thanks. And uh, yeah, so R is recto and S is sinister, I think. We no, it was a nice easy one here for um, Ben just coming. Richard's story. Is the universe asymmetrical? I don't mean, think it means the particles, but, you know, that the bubble of existence we're in, is that asymmetric? Yeah, um, actually, physicists are looking for that. You can look at the afterglow of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background, and try and look for that. I think the fair statement is so far no evidence, no clear evidence for that has been found. But, you know, it's a subject of active inquiry. The universe could be spinning, which would, of course, give it some kind of handedness and should leave some imprint in the afterglow. Chris? A variant on that one is a while ago there were claims that there may be more left-handed than right-handed galaxies. And they had people going through um, images of... Galaxy you know, Zoo. Yeah. That's right, and going through classifying them. And to start with, it looks like it was about 52 to 48%, I think. And when they look more closely, it was mostly biases on the part of people looking at these things rather than genuine differences. And we're not very good at distinguishing right and left in everyday life, in fact. Talking yeah. of, of looking, uh, Bill Jenks says um, our dominant eye is usually the same as our hand, but are some cross-dominant. Why is that? It's probably the same genes, but just as 10% of people write with their left hand, 20% kick with their left foot, 30% look with their left eye, and again, the math simply means that there's going to be a lot of funny combinations floating around there. Chris, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Harriet Johnson. And uh, now, talking about the evolution of the universe, well, now let's talk about the evolution of humans. Hannah has been finding out if we're still evolving. This week, we get the cogs turning. Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm Stefan from Switzerland, and I was wondering about human microevolution. Birds and insects are changing their patterns to cope with climate change. But what about us? Will we develop stronger index fingers to use with touchscreens or computer mice? So, are our modern lifestyles directing the way us humans evolve? Over to Robert Foley, Professor of Human Evolution at Cambridge University. Evolutionary changes usually occur through small genetic shifts, which are then selected for and spread through a population. For humans to evolve significantly in a new direction, would take immense selective pressures. Selection like this, fingers coping with touchscreens, is unlikely to be really very strong and certainly unlikely to be strong enough to spread through such a large population as the human one. Still concerned about the speed of natural selection and my digits, I dial up John Amauer, Professor of Human Genetics at Nottingham University. Spreading genes by natural selection 
is incredibly slow. It's a generation-by-generation process, but it's effective. Humans, because we have ideas and communication, we can spread ideas and technologies and tricks, if you like, much, much faster than we can spread genes. And, of course, we can spread ideas to people we're not related to, where genes, by natural selection, can only be passed on to descendants. So I think the answer is that engineering, the market, will fix a new touchscreen pad that is easier for human beings as opposed to human beings evolving to adapt to the touchscreen pad. And on Facebook, Gerald McMullen comments that technology changes too fast and natural selection too slowly to make any advantage apparent. Back to Robert Foley for this word of caution. Having said that, there are possible ways in which things will change. As we use computers more and more, it may not affect the muscular physiology or skeletal biology of humans, but it could well affect the way our brains are wired, particularly as these often develop interactively with the environment in which we grow and develop. We next crunch into some data. A tantalisingly anonymous listener from Whittlesford, Cambridgeshire, got in touch asking... What I was wondering is, if the human genome contains 750 megabytes of storage and 90% is roughly the same as a banana, then why does my PC operating system need one gigabyte? So human cells contain data in the form of DNA, and this data acts as a blueprint or set of instructions to allow our brain and body to work properly. But why does your standard PC need more data storage than one of us? If you can help Hannah, then please send your thoughts, comments or questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find The Naked Scientist Question of the Week on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. There's a Question of the Week thread there, or you can tweet your answers to at Naked Scientists. Right, we asked you at the beginning of the show, what proportion of countries drive on the left or the right side of the road? Depending on which way you interpret it, you can tell us the answer. Chris McManus knows this because it's in his book. Chris, what proportion of people drive <laughs> legally on the right and what proportion on the left? It depends whether you do people or countries. There's more countries that drive on the right, but by the time you take over the populations, about two-thirds of the world drives on the right and about a third of the world drives on the left. Not at the same time, and not following Stephen's suggestion to have the lorries on the right and the cars on the left to speed things up. That's right. That would be bad. Thank you, Chris. Uh, That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests who contributed. Jeff Booker, Melinda Dewar, Scott Thomas, Joanne Yu, Chris McManus, Stephen Driver and Ben Alanak. Thank you also to Harriet Johnson from the Genetic Society's Internship Scheme for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you here, Harriet. And do join us next time when we're going to be charging up our batteries. We'll look at energy storage solutions on next week's programme. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. We're supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.